On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, provide an update on conferences, live and virtual, discuss the CMS requirements for an ASC to be a distinct entity, and in our focus segment, meet with the staff of AHS to discuss 2021 and lessons from 2020. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 138 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for September 7th, 2021. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. Well, we are to the end of the summer, I guess. We're recording this on the day after uh, Labor Day and uh, mm -hmm. sad face, right? Yeah, kind of. I love the fall, though. Yeah, honestly. that's true. I do, so. And I think we have a bit more summer left to go if we were, you know, grandkids are heading back to school and yeah. all that. But, you know, got some still some warm weather left. Well, but we are so busy right now with surveys. And it seems like every single one of your mm -hmm. clients who at Amateur Healthcare Strategies is having a survey. And yeah. probably all this week, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with unannounced like surveys it. is that, mm -hmm. you know, Murphy's Law always kind of dictates that they, uh, they'll all show up. Uh, the surveyors all <laughs> show up on the same day. But I'm heading down after we record this. I'm heading down to the city yeah. to be ready for a survey that we expect to happen tomorrow. But it's uh, tell me a little bit about some of the challenges you've been having with preparing for surveys. What's been the biggest issues that you've had? Well, I think just getting caught up, there's been so many changes, especially yeah. in New York with all of the with COVID issues, testing, vaccinations, and making sure we're up to date on all of that. And just gathering all the information and, and getting everything in and completed and, and having the policies rechecked because people are so short staffed right now. Yeah. Just, um, you know, everybody's doing the best they can, but but it's just hard to keep up right there's now. There's just not enough people. and. Mm -hmm. and we're pretty sure this is across the country, not just among our clients, yes. that, uh, you know, we're, we're short on people. We can't mm -hmm. find nurses. We're very short on, you know, nursing managers and administrators, yeah. nursing uh, leaders in particular, mm -hmm. uh, which is a great segue to, uh, you know, our conversation about upcoming conferences. We really have a lot going on right now, both a, a mixture of live conferences and virtual conferences. Mm -hmm. So uh, to that end, uh, we announced the Director of Nursing Boot Camp, which is going to be November 16th through the 19th. Uh, that is a virtual conference still. 
Uh, and there's a lot more than just the four day conference. You know, there's, uh, you know, weekly check in sessions that are available to people as well mm-hmm. as a lot of online resources. So if you're a new nurse manager or if you've, uh, you know, we've, we've run into a situation recently, Sue, where we've had to get people that really don't have a lot of management experience. And uh, the boot camp is a great opportunity for them to learn, yeah. you know, what it is to be a nurse manager uh, in a very intensive way and, and to be able to go back and review it afterwards. Uh, mm-hmm, you know, there's mm-hmm. always recordings available to it. But but the good news is that we do have some live conferences coming up. I'm going to be a keynote speaker at the Ohio ASC Association Conference, uh, which is September 27th and 28th. And you're going with me out there. We're going to do a podcast yep. from there. And then we hop in the car and we drive as fast <laughs> as we can to New York State, which has mm-hmm. their conference uh, September 29th to the 30th. And uh, we'll do a podcast from there also. So uh, we're going to be pretty busy that week recording those things. And then actually before that, the week before, Texas ASC Association, I'll be on a panel uh, discussion down there. That's on September 21st. And uh, I'm going to do some recordings for a podcast down there. I don't know that you're going with me right now. We're having some transportation questions. So, uh, uh, But if you're not, you'll you'll be uh, dealing with stuff from back here. So. And I'll be at the uh, 2021 Ambulatory Surgery Center's Congress in, uh, at the Araya Resort and Casino on November 8th and 9th, 2021. That's going to be in Las Vegas. And that'll be interesting to go back to Las Vegas. Uh, I haven't been back there, of course, since well before the pandemic. It's not, mm-hmm. not an area I, I particularly uh, spend a lot of time in. Uh, so I'll be on a panel discussion down there. And then really exciting, and we're starting to build up this uh, momentum for this. We have a medical director conference on October 9th. It's a Saturday mm-hmm. for medical directors. And all of our uh, amateur healthcare strategy uh, medical directors will be attending that. There's no charge if you're an AHS uh, medical director or uh, if you're a client of amateur healthcare strategies or if you are a uh, patron member and uh, uh, you, uh, you can sign up your medical director for your facility. So all mm-hmm. of those are free. And then, of course, the ASC Conditions for Coverage Conference, which will be October 22nd, 2021. We're already getting quite a, quite a number of people signing up for that. So a lot going on. This is conference season, isn't it, Sue? Yes, it is. Nice to see some of them actually happening in person. In too. person, yeah. And, our, and I'll tell you, the boot camps are just have been very popular and so much fun. We really, are, we do enjoy them. We really, and, and they've, uh, we got an excellent feedback from them. So uh, we'll continue to do two nursing uh, boot camps a year and two administrators boot camps. So we'll be announcing the next administrators boot camp in, uh, it will be sometime in January. So, so Sue, what's going on in the, in the news? This was just um, an interesting article I saw in AORN's outpatient surgery magazine, um, the August edition. So they noted there's been a recent increase in plastic surgery that they think is due to the increase in Zoom calls and and other similar platforms. I can so relate. It just <laughs> seems that watching. By them, the way, we're not joking. Yeah, no, this is true. And this is not an uh, onion. Yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> that for people watching themselves on the video calls has made you know people much more aware of the things that they'd like to change so a lot of facial surgeries and injectables facial peels that kind of thing um people are also spending more time on social media which can give a kind of a distorted view of things so the doctors in the articles actually talked about what they called zoom dysmorphia where people have a falsely poor view of themselves due to video quality and the proximity of the cameras you know we're not normally standing you know a foot away from somebody's face when we're talking to them um, so we're not used to seeing other people in that kind of detail. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
you may not realize that you're just pretty normal, but, you know, people are always hypercritical of themselves. So um, just, you know, one more damaging effect of the pandemic. On the positive side, if plastic surgery was something that someone had been interested in, the ability to recover at home without taking vacation time, as well as maybe having some extra cash from not driving to work or buying lunches every day um, has allowed people to do that. So that could also be part of it. Um, I guess the takeaway is for doctors, you know, just be sure your patients are being realistic and that they're doing the procedure for the right reasons. And for all the rest of us, just don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> That's right. Not everybody has the advantage of studio lighting to yeah. enhance the Yeah, but uh, it can only there. do so much. <laughs> I totally. <laughs> well, I love that story. It's just a, it's a little bit different uh, take on mm -hmm. things. So as we're sitting here in uh, in September, of course, uh, a lot of things going on now. Uh, uh, New York State has just uh, implemented a requirement that all employees in a surgery center must either be vaccinated or have a, a medical exemption from that, and, and very few medical exemptions are going on. I know California has a requirement that uh, you be vaccinated uh, or you have to be tested. So yeah. I think those are, are uh, I think it's becoming the norm here. You I know, think I saw that there's 19 or 20 different states are putting some sort of yeah. um, regulation, whether they're allowing you to test out of it by testing frequently or not. They're definitely, it's it's kind of the trend. And, and I know there's a lot of uh, issues right now about privacy and, you know, the freedom to choose. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you and, and uh, my, my daughter, uh, uh, Jenna, who is mm -hmm. uh, also with Amateur Ethical Strategies, kind of made the point, uh, you know, you, you have to have your shots. Mm -hmm. I in mean, healthcare. So, well, in healthcare, and even right. kids going into school. Right, But right. in healthcare, I think we, we should be kind of used to this by now. Yeah. So I, I, I don't see the, the reason that we're having as many problems mm -hmm. uh, knowing that this isn't a, a new problem. I mean, it's a new uh, yeah. disease or a new uh, uh, virus that we're having to deal with. But but everybody, you know, is used to having to get shots in order to be able to go to school or to be able to mm -hmm. work in a surgery center. So. And now that, that I think Pfizer at least has the um, the FDA approval. Right, it's right. Not, that should not help. emergency yeah. use anymore. I wanted to talk today, we've had a, a number of phone calls and questions about distinct entities. So I thought that um, I would uh, talk a little bit about the CMS requirement of a distinct entity. So in order to be certified as an ambulatory surgery center, one of the requirements for the conditions for coverage is that you are a distinct entity. In other words, you aren't tied in directly to another organization such as a physician's practice. So uh, let's say that you, uh, that a doctor owns a surgery center as well as his practice. Those two entities have to be distinct in some way. They have to be separated, usually separate corporations. And the interpretive guidelines state this. An ASC satisfies the criterion for being a distinctive entity when it is wholly separate and clearly distinguishable from any other healthcare facility or office-based physician practice. The ASC is not required to be housed in a separate building from other healthcare facilities or physicians' practices, but in accordance with the NFPA, the Life Safety Code requirements, um, it must be separated from other facilities or operations within the same building by walls with at least a one-hour separation. If, if there are state licensure requirements for more permanent separations, the ASC must comply with the more stringent requirement. So I think we all know these rules intuitively, but um, but here it is in writing. And again, mm -hmm. if you wanted to see this, I'll, I'll put a reference in the uh, show notes to the interpretive guidelines. But it is in, in, extremely important that we couple this with also the requirement that the surgery center only be 
in the business of doing surgery, which means that's why you can't have a physician say, hey, can I can the patient come back to the surgery center for the post-op appointment? And we've run into that before. Or, you know, I don't have an opportunity to see the patient prior to surgery. Can I see the patient at the surgery center just before the surgery? Uh, you know, for example, if it's a GI procedure mm-hmm. or a pain management procedure. And again, those situations violate uh, the distinct entity, that um, that requirement that they only be in the business of doing surgery. Now, we know that a lot of surgery centers have a very close relationship or are owned wholly by a physician's practice. So that's the most common situation where the distinct entity situation arises. And we do have, you know, so we have a couple centers, for example, that do share, in other words, they have a the center is both the surgery center and the practice. Mm-hmm. So in that case, the requirement is a temporal separation. Temporal meaning not temporary, but temporal meaning time separation. So the surgery center can only be open and doing surgery certain hours. Mm-hmm. And then during those hours, it can't be doing physician practice type items and vice versa. And when mm-hmm. it's open as a physician's practice, it can't be doing any surgery. And as long as you post a sign out front that clearly differentiates the time frames for that, you're fine. So during the hours that the ASC is closed, its records must be secure and not accessible by non-ASC personnel. So that's the real challenge here, especially when you're sharing space, because there is a requirement that you literally have to walk, lock away uh, you know, the medical records and all mm-hmm. the records for that. Usually what that means is that you have a separate room where you put all those records, that you close the door you know, when it's open as a practice, and vice versa too. Um, permitting use of common non-clinical space by distinct entities separated temporally does not mean that the ASC is relieved of its obligation to comply with NFPA life safety code standards for ASCs. So, you know, obviously you got to maintain that separation. You got to maintain those NFP requirements at all times. The interpretive guidelines go on to say it is not permissible for an ASC during the hours of operation to rent out or otherwise make available an OR or procedure room or other clinical space to make to another provider or supplier, including a physician with an adjacent space. So again, you can't be doing surgery at the same time that a physician is using it for another purpose. Now, it is possible, and we've had clients in the past, you know, who have uh, used the space, you know, for another physician to come in, but you're not operating as a surgery center at that point. So you got to be very careful. You got to post signs that are very specific that you're not an ASC during that time. Usually you kind of have rotating signs or a sign that says, you know, from nine to 12, you're the surgery center from one to four, you're uh, the practice. Um, and then there's also kind of a weird situation. A question came up uh, recently that you can actually have multiple surgery centers sharing the same space. I know this is kind of common in parts of California where uh, I guess the extreme would be you have a surgery center, let's say a, a plastic surgeon, for example, that's actually five centers in one. So on Monday, it's Dr. Smith, who is a plastic surgeon. On Tuesday, it's Dr. Jones, who's a plastic surgeon. On Wednesday, it's Dr. Green, et cetera. Uh, and as long as each of those surgery centers I have a separate license and a separate certification, uh, which also includes, you know, separate surveys, things like that. It is possible to share the same space. It's a real challenge to do that sort of Mm -hmm. thing because that common space, which is the entire surgery center, has to be maintained by, you know, all five of those practices or however many practices are sharing it. But that situation uh, might be occurring more more frequently. The question just came up in New York for, uh, you know, one of our clients that were considering that situation. So just be aware that the conditions for coverage do allow that type of a situation. 
So, Sue, I thought for today's focus segment, we would uh, do an interview that was actually recorded back in May. It's been mm-hmm. quite a while. We've been uh, we've had a lot of uh, a lot of interruptions in the meantime. <laughs> but the uh, Amateur Healthcare Strategy crew, I think there were maybe ten of us, twelve of us I here for so. the yep. for the retreat. We do a retreat twice a year here in uh, in our in our other studio, shall we say? And we brought everybody together. We uh, turned on the microphones and and just had a nice free for all conversation. <laughs> uh, just uh, we went around the room and you know talked about. Uh, you know, what everybody has been experiencing, some of the issues that they've been running into in their specific areas of expertise, for example, uh, as well as experiences they've had with their clients. So it was a great conversation. And uh, I'm sorry it's taken us so long to get Mm -hmm. this. So let's take a short break and we'll come back and we'll listen to uh, the discussion we had at Ambitory Healthcare Strategies Spring Retreat. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the ASC podcast with John Gailey. But did you know that you can enhance your experience and support the free podcast by becoming a patron member? Patron members have access to ASC Central and add-on service at a very reasonable price. Patron members have access to our regular drop-in virtual meetings where you can discuss issues that you are dealing with in your ambulatory surgery center with the hosts and other members. Members also have access to valuable member resources, including a a document library with a growing list of resources, including the rules and regulations, guides to maintaining compliance, example policies and procedures, infection control resources, example risk assessments, example committee and governing body minutes, and over 60 disaster drill scenario kits and example forms and checklists. Members also have access to some of the virtual conferences that we have presented, including the Provider Credentialing Conference, which we offered in December 2020. It's a New World Conference in 2020. Infection Control in-service to meet the challenges of COVID-19. And the ASC Mandatory Education Program, which is a valuable resource for annual education for your staff. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit ASCPodcast.com. To become a member, visit ASCPodcast.com. So this is John Gailey and uh, Sue Cronkite. We are here at our fourth annual spring retreat for the Inventory Healthcare Strategies. This is uh, a very exciting event that uh, we've been holding for four years. Uh, for the last two years, unfortunately, we've had to uh, hold it in uh, uh, Susan, my home here in Rochester, New York. Uh, prior to that, we uh, used to go to these nice resort areas. I think year one, we were in the Poconos. Year two, we were in Saratoga Springs. Next year, we already have picked out where we're going to be, be uh, thanks to a uh, uh, wonderful reference from our, our dear friend, uh, Judy D'Ambrosio, who apparently goes to this place every year. So, uh, But this, uh, the, the, uh, the retreat is a wonderful opportunity for us to get together as a company and talk strategy, try to uh, you know, uh, make sure everybody is uh, working together uh, to, uh, to get to the same goal. And we enjoyed our time together. We, of course, are mostly a family and friends company. Be honest with you, a lot of our employees are family members, and if you're not a family member, you've been a friend of ours for a very long time. Uh, I'm going to go around the room and introduce everybody, and at the very end, we're going to introduce a very exciting change to our organization. So, why don't we just uh, go around? We're uh, we're all sitting here in a conference room, 
in uh, Rochester, New York, in our uh, in the ground floor of our uh, of, uh, Susan My Home, and uh, this is uh, wonderful. This is actually Studio Two of the uh, ASC Podcast with John Gailey Studios here. Uh, so I'm John Gailey, obviously the host of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Next to me is Sue Cronkite. I'm a senior nurse consultant with AHS and the co-host of the uh, podcast. Uh, Lori Roberts, I'm the director of clinical services for the organization. Jenna Alvarez, senior consultant. Bringing Jenna back, by the way. She had been on uh, maternity leave for a uh, year. Uh, I like wish. <laughs> <laughs> so we've uh, Jenna, Jenna's been joining us, and we've been watching her baby in daycare the entire time that she's uh, she's here. But uh, welcome back, Jenna. This is Alex Borneman, director of operations here. Laura Plummer, consultant. Laura is one of our new hires here. Uh, came on board in November, and uh, thank you so much, Laura, for for uh, chipping in here. You've uh, become a very valuable employee since. Thank you, you for having us. me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Judy D'Ambrosio, director of education for AHS. And employee number one. Well, I guess I'm employee number one. Okay. Our second yes. employee hired many years ago. Employee number two. I don't know if I like the sound of that or not. <laughs> And Zach Calaritas, financial consultant for AHS. And Zach is joining us remotely here. We're sitting in our uh, in Studio Two, which is our conference room, uh, and uh, we have this wonderful technology where Zach is joining us from Atlanta, uh, Georgia. Earlier, we had uh, Denise Van Buren, who is a senior nurse consultant, also with the company. She unfortunately had to uh, to sign off for a while, but she, she joined us for a short period of time. And so announcing. Oh my God, I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I am, I really am. Announcing for the first time publicly, drumroll, Ann Geyer, who is our new <laughs> Chief Nursing Officer for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Welcome, Ann. Oh, thank you, John. It's been a long couple of days. We were all brain overloaded. Um, it's been a great three days. I got to meet everybody in the company, learn about all the clients, technology coming out both sides of my head. <laughs> I've learned a lot about technology, but it's just exciting. It's just going to be a lot of fun. We have so many ideas of things that we want to do as a company and get you involved in training and all kinds of things. So I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Well, thank you. When, uh, when Ann was uh, deciding where to go, she had been with uh, SIS, Surgical Information System, our dear friends at, at SIS. Yeah, uh, Still for, are. Right. A number of years, one of the uh, co- uh, one of the sponsors of the, of the show and... Uh, very, very dear friends of ours, when she decided to uh, to move along, I am so honored that the first phone call she made was to me. And uh, That was is, the first phone call, too. <laughs> and after I picked, I could hear this pregnant pause, you know, John said, what did you, because I said, what are your plans for hiring? And so he's just chatting, and I, he said, why? So, because I might be interested. And there was this silence, <laughs> dead silence. And within 20 minutes, we were on board with the whole thing. It was done. It was, it was done And for those of you out there listening to this who thought I've been working with John already for years, <laughs> um, it feels like I have because we've known each other for such a long yeah. time. But um, And we've collaborated on so many different projects that it's it has seemed like that. We've laughed about it on podcasts. So it was a good fit. Well, and and Ann increases our, uh, our surveyor um, retinue for Greatly so. Uh, Ann is also a AAAC surveyor, as long as, as well as myself and uh, Lori Rodericks, and of course uh, Jim Masters. Jim was with us yesterday. He's not with us today. Jim is a uh, is our uh, life safety uh, 
surveyor on our staff and also a life safety surveyor at 888C. So uh, now we have four surveyors. To the best of my knowledge, we have more surveyors than any other organization of our type in the country. So uh, what an incredible capability that we have. Ann will be uh, joining us helping. You know, one thing we've never really gotten into, Ann, is uh, revenue cycle management. Uh, you, of course, have a lot of that. very strong background in that. Uh, you and uh, Christina Benton, our dear friend, who, yes, who doesn't work for a company, but another person. Uh, she's that, another one that would people think she would Yeah, best. yeah. And uh, Christina and I, uh, of course, partner on the uh, finance and accounting seminars, uh, which we try to do twice a year. So that'll, uh, that uh, revenue cycle management piece will be valuable for our clients. And, uh, you know, just really with, uh, with her experience, uh, she's going to be helping us out on our training side and our mentoring we're going to talk about that a little bit later, just how uh, mentoring is such an important part. We actually did a podcast earlier with Ann. So, so here's the secret. So for all of our loyal listeners out there, you did hear two interviews uh, prior to this recording that we're doing right now. Uh, and I think we tried to be very uh, secretive during those recordings because it wasn't going to be announced at that point. Right. Uh, that the reason that Ann was joining us is because she just happened to be in town in little... Yeah, Rochester, by way of West Palm Beach, I just drifted into Rochester. <laughs> it's right next door. Yeah. Right next door. It's similar to beautiful weather, beautiful weather here. And also during our uh, our, our time together in the last three days is uh, uh, Lori and Anne, Sue and I have uh, agreed that uh, the four of us will be regulars on our podcast. So uh, I think uh, there is so much to talk about. We sat down a couple days ago to turn the recorder on, let Rosie, our uh, puppy, <laughs> into the room and talk for, I, you know, you do realize we talked for an hour and a half, just nonstop. And we didn't have a cue. I mean, there was nothing. We, we had just almost talked. no notes at all. And well, off we went. The notes we had, nobody paid attention <laughs> to. So I don't even know. But we I weren't thought. lacking for things to talk about. And I think one of the, the subjects that comes up a lot during these conferences and during any of our conversations together as a team is the importance of education, the importance of mentoring, the importance of developing uh, the staff at all of our centers, developing the, the people that listen to our podcast, mm-hmm. because we know a significant part of of running a surgery center successfully is having the knowledge that you need to have to meet all the regulatory requirements and to make your organization successful. So again, welcome Ann. Uh, thank you to, uh, publicly to all of you for participating. Uh, we are at the very end. Well, we're not quite at the end of it, but thank you to everybody that's been involved. So, so what we do during this annual retreat, and we do have two retreats a year, but our spring one, the one that we're in right now, tends to be our, our longest one. Um, is talk about things, you know, global issues in the organization. We've often talked, we've recorded a podcast at every single uh, retreat that we have done over the last four years, and, and we often talk about the importance of getting away, getting your management team away, getting your staff away periodically to have conversations about this. Uh, I often say it doesn't matter how long the retreat is, just the opportunity to get away from work for a while, whatever uh, forum you can possibly do. Being away from the center is, is better than, than doing it on site, but those these types of things offer you an opportunity to really listen to everybody. I hope that I've done a good job of listening to all of the people around the room here, uh, and uh, Alex, uh, as my director of operations, and I, will we have a we have a big job ahead of us to kind of actualize all the stuff that we have done in the last uh, two days here. Uh, Alex uh, said to us uh, about an hour ago, uh, thank you very much. Now my to-do list is five times as long as it was coming into this, and and that is a, a challenge that the uh, the guys in operations have. Uh, and since we well, only now, have one person in operations, that's... And now we all have Todoist. <laughs> so we put in our notes, our to-do list in this new app that we learned about. And mine is growing by the minute. So. 
that's going to be my challenge. I look around the room. Everybody is typing on their computers here. Yeah. Right? Well, people some of us coming up with things to ideas. do. Yeah. Uh, so there's a number of topics I do want to talk about. And don't mind all the technology here we have with everybody around the room. All of our cell phones go off periodically. But So I thought the topic that we would start with is peer review. Uh, Anne and Lori, uh, both the three of us as surveyors, are finding peer review issues during surveys to be a pretty significant uh, situation right now. Now, Anne, you're, you're just starting to get out on the road and, and do surveys, but you certainly have kept up with everything that's going on, and, and you have a wealth of uh, yeah. Our depth of knowledge in that area. So I thought we would start by talking about some of the challenges that we run into with peer review. I will state that uh, every time we take on a new organization, one of the first things we usually find is that the peer review is either non-existent or it is done poorly, or the physicians are just not engaged in it. I think another thing that we run into periodically is that the physician, there is one physician doing the peer review for every everything. So uh, I'll, I'll open it up to the floor for anybody that wants to uh, chime in and their thoughts on this. Well, I want to start by saying peer review is not a medical record audit, a medical chart audit. And so many centers just think, well, we're checking to make sure everything's there. That's not peer review. So if that's what you're doing, stop right there and get as much information and learning as you can on what true peer review, which is you're looking for quality of care provided, and it becomes all about the patient. And you've got to do it. It has to be meaningful. You have to be looking at things that are going to have an impact on the patient. Yeah, and I think we need to separate out, uh, absolutely, the, the chart audit is not the only part of peer review. Also, there are different types of chart audits. When, when you are doing a chart audit, there are different types of chart audit. We have the nursing chart audit, for example, and then we have the physician chart audit. Those are two completely separate things. A peer review chart audit is going to be where a physician looks at a chart to try to make determinations to review it for things that only a physician can do. Questions like, was the procedure that performed, uh, does that matches with the diagnosis of the patient? Right. Uh, were complications managed appropriately? Did the procedure go off without any complications? If there, if there were uh, any uh, any complications, you know, what was the progress of care? Could it have been avoided, Absolutely. for example? Uh, but to your point, uh, the second thing is random chart audits are not enough, too. You should be peer-reviewing any clinical incident. Any ever, events. Any events. But really, as surveyors, peer review is one of those, those things that is, is one of the most frequent deficiencies we find. So, and then you stop because AAAHC, which is what we're part of, it, it, we like to teach. Yeah. So if they're having problems, it's going to put total halt to the survey as we try to teach you how to get back on track. Then you have to teach your physicians how to get back on track. And peer review is not just chart audits. You should be looking at things like, uh, you know, what are the satisfaction survey results Absolutely. Uh, for your, uh, from your patients for those surgeons? Well, one of the things I was going to say when I mentioned earlier about meaningful peer review, an example I would give is if, if you only do eyes, then you may be looking at your, your vitrectomy rate, yeah. your, your uh, lost nucleus rate, things that a GI center is never going to look at. But the GI center may be looking at the number of cases canceled for incomplete prep. So somebody needs to be looking at and developing peer review based on what you do. And that's what meaningful is. I mean, doctors get totally fed up when they're given generic sheets. They said, this has nothing to do with us. And you're saying, well, I still need you to do it. Well, and the doctor should be giving input into what they do want. That's exactly right, Jenna. No, that's exactly right. But... What we find is the doctors weren't involved at all. 
So well, they don't want to be involved yeah. a lot of times. They have like, to be engaged right. in the yeah, process exactly in order right. to tell you what they want to have. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah, and the other thing um, in regards to peer review, and maybe it's just me as a surveyor, but I like I like to see how the um, peer review findings is being utilized in the recredentialing process. Yeah. And you know, so as a center, I. I want you to think of a way that you can, I don't want to say prove this, but that you can show that this is being done, whether it's a sign-off at the bottom of the peer review um, form, this is utilized in recredentialing, or if on the recredentialing form, there's a part where it's signed off by the peer review committee, if you have one of those, or that it's just a statement, peer review was utilized in the determination of approving the privileges or the, you know, re- requested privileges above. And that's what we like do. That. Yeah, that's what we do in the minutes of the governing body for our clients. Right. Is that it's written right into the governing body minutes that uh, the, the approval for the privileges was based upon review of the credentials and the review of the peer review performed by the, uh, you know, whatever committee in the organization, right. often the quality improvement and, and the governing body. Right, but... But remember that if you have 20 doctors and they're all being credentialed at different times, that's going to be multiple governing body minutes that you might have to present to the surveyor. So, which is fine. Just, yeah. So if you're going to do it, make sure you're signing them off or, or calling them out in those minutes by name um, so that you can see that it is being done. But yeah. you need to have a way of showing us that you're doing it. Well, and, and so what generally happens is in the minutes of the governing body, you refer to the, the fact that peer review was done, and then supporting that would be the actual peer review results, which would be in a, in a it, that has to be, uh, of course, kept locked up, and that's not going to, you're not going to mention the physician's specific peer review results in the governing body minutes, but there, it will refer back to the, that information that's available in that file. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about is surveys. Uh, we as a company have had an average of one survey uh, every one and a half, two weeks uh, over the past uh, nine months here. I, th- I would say we've had quite a bit of experience with surveys lately. And a big issue that has been coming up is uh, often where we get involved in a, in a surgery center that has, you know, is within the first three years of their uh, accreditation. And... Often, you know, we'll, we'll come on board about a year maybe before the, uh, the second survey and uh, we'll come in and we'll say, hey, listen, you know, you've, you've, you're, you've got a bunch of things that need to be done here. And they'll say, listen, it's not a problem. We passed our first survey with flying colors. Don't worry. We're going to do great on the second. So, so, uh, so again, I look to my two surveyors who, who often are the ones that are surveying that second survey after the initial one. What tends, tends to happen? What are those, those uh, problems there? I always get nervous when I don't see any citations, and I don't mean citations, but any deficiencies at all, Um, because there's no such thing as a perfect center, there's no such thing as perfect charting, Uh, there's no such thing as perfect, uh, you know, medication safety or um, breaks in infection control, such as hand washing, that that doesn't exist, so, you know, don't be alarmed please don't be alarmed that on the second or third time around they're finding things because it's a different set of eyes with different um, fortes. You know, we, we all specialize in different areas of our licenses and it could be a bad day for somebody. And, you know, if you see it, you write it. Yeah. So um, I, 
I find sometimes that administrators or directors, nurse directors or whatnot, uh, get personally offended if you find something, but that's okay because it's now it's an opportunity to improve. And, you know, the whole purpose is to improve upon what you're doing. Even if you're doing things well, you can always continue to do them well. But as I look around the room here at our, uh, our seniors, uh, senior consultants, either nurse consultants or other consultants, uh, is it fair to say that that first survey after the initial one, in other words, that first survey after you've been in operation for at least three years, is never a fun one? No, no that's, usually, right, yeah. that's usually the hardest, I would mm-hmm. say. That's when the, the centers find out. You figure out which centers are actually keeping up day in, day out with what they need to do versus those that you know, really just have let things yeah. go. Yeah. You just wanted to get, in the, get started the first survey and then just kind of let things uh, well during that first survey nobody is able to really <laughs> look at quality improvement no right uh you don't see the peer thing. review um like we just talked about you don't see uh you know a full cycle you don't see that annual review of quality improvement program uh, you don't see whether they've revised the policy manual based upon things that have happened you don't even have a full year of uh Life safety testing. Or or charts. You only have a handful of charts when you do your initial survey if you are a brand new center. If you're new to that accreditation uh, group, then yeah, you might have, you know, a a plethora of charts and you've been around for a while, you've just changed organizations. But when you're a a brand new center, everything, everything is pretty and sparkly and clean and, you know, and then all of a sudden three years later, oh, there's tears on the floor or dings in the wall that we don't see as it in our own homes you know so it's just you know stuff like that well I think a lot of them sit back and think oh that survey was easy I don't really have mm-hmm. to spend a lot of time preparing for the next mm-hmm. one plus you're right now the volume is tripled and they're they're all busy and they just didn't look at the stuff um, in depth like they probably mm-hmm. should have and I have been known and I'm sure you and Lori John have written the same things where we critique the previous surveyors. So if we come in and we find a long list of things wrong, I've been known to write on there, this isn't the same surgery center that was surveyed the last time because these are not new issues. These things had to have been here before. Somebody just missed them. And I don't even know the surveyors that were there before me, but we're not looking at the same things. And who does the survey, who does the um, center get mad at? They get mad at us, the current surveyors. Because now they're saying, well, you're too picky, or you're this. Or, and, okay, I'll show you the standards. That's that's all I'm doing is looking at the standard. Yeah, and I think, the again, from the life safety perspective, even losing the initial documentation that oh, the center created, yeah. not hanging on to that, I think you can throw it all out. On the life safety side, they're, they're going to want to, even on the second survey, you know, they're going to want to see the initial... You know, firearm testing. Yeah, right. Yeah. So keep that information. And it's not just life safety. I'm just to throw another one out there right now. Is that uh, uh, we we run into the situation. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to poor Sue next to me here, who had to recreate. uh, I had to work with one of our centers who lost all of the initial credentialing for all of their providers. Sue, can you tell what a joy that was for you to recreate that data? It's a lot of fun, but also there, you know, there's some things you just can't recreate. We could help to organize it, but a lot of it, you know, say you kind of have to just admit your mistake, your failure, and then then prove that you're doing it right moving forward.
Yeah, and interestingly, the, the client I'm referring to, uh, even though we've been talking here about that first survey after the initial one, mm-hmm. this organization has been around for 20, 20 30 years. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I guess it can be understood that sometimes you can lose that type of data. We have no idea how it was lost. They have no idea how it was lost. We actually kind of went through the survey pretty well. Mm-hmm. So what happened is uh, we could not find the initial uh, application yeah. and, and verification. Yeah. So we recredentialed every single one of the providers there as though they were a brand new mm-hmm. provider. Yeah, and it doesn't cover anything up. I mean, obviously you can't go back and fix things, right. but, you know, we showed that, okay, this is the best that we can do starting at this point. And moving forward, we're, we're going to do it correctly. So. And, and the survey ended up not uh, penalizing us for, for that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we had fixed the problem a good yeah, about nine months before, yeah. before the surveyors came out. But getting back to this topic, Alex and... Uh, Judy, both of you were involved in uh, one of those uh, those surveys that uh, was one of Jenna's clients that they turned over to the two of you. Did you notice how I sometimes wonder whether yeah. Jenna like plans these things? It, like, oh, it was the pregnancy. It was planned. They yeah, had to be. Planned. There's was, no way. There's no way that wasn't planned. Ten months out. And just saying, oh, this is when all my <laughs> surveys are going to be. I'm go- we're going to do this right now. <laughs> so, so we did. And upset about that. <laughs> Where is she now? Why is she speaking? <laughs> yeah, Jenna's left the room, needless to say. Uh, but uh, talk a little bit, without getting into specifics, but that, uh, that survey of that particular organization had exactly that situation. What happened is they did say, oh, we passed that, that survey with flying colors. They said, and this is going to be important in a few minutes here, Alex, they said, we even put a generator in, and we didn't need that generator. And, uh, you know, that's how, how good we've done. And we were an OBS beforehand, so we knew what to do. So, Alex and Judy, how would you like to kind of indicate some of the challenges that we had during that survey as we were uh, as we went through it in the plan of correction we had to create afterwards? The biggest challenge I found was that what you're talking about, that level of confidence. Yeah. To the point where one of the people in charge at this center was face-to-face with the surveyor. Yeah. I'm right and you're wrong. I mean, that's how confident they were. We had done so well. Mm-hmm. We are so good by nature. Whatever you're saying is wrong. And, and I don't care what position you're in, what what kind of survey you're having, what kind of survey you have in front of her, in front of you, please don't get right in the face of a surveyor and tell them they're wrong and they're stupid and you know better than they do because it's really just not going to work well for you. <laughs> And it was at that point of the survey, I was offside. I was on Zoom and like, I'm like banging my head on my kitchen wall going, John, shut him up. John, John, help me here. Yeah, um, I actually. She texted me. She goes, oh my gosh. You're not gonna like and I don't know what to do. I had a nurse manager on a survey one time. Her records were the biggest mess. Her employee mm-hmm. files and she was in charge. Biggest mess. She kept getting more and more frustrated. You could just see it coming. Yeah. She picked up some of the files and she threw them at me. I mean, literally threw them at me. I mean, her boss is sitting right next to her. Files are all over the floor, all mixed up. And I thought, ooh, I don't think she's going to have a job tomorrow. And thus the reason to make sure that they are secure. Absolutely. In the the actual binder. This girl just... She just lost it, and it's like I understand how frustrated, how scary they I've are, been on her how frustrated they are. Um, can't do but that. yeah, it, no, I don't. And I want you to be confident. Like if, I, if mm-hmm. I'm getting a, a client ready for survey, I want them to be confident. I tell them how proud I am of them. You're going to be fine. You've yeah. done all this well. I want confidence. I don't want like snarky. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
there's there's a fine line. So well, uh, Aaron, yeah. well, and it's not gonna it's not gonna end well when you argue with the surveyor because mm-hmm. the surveyor, I mean, is the one writing it up. We're the one writing it up, and, and we, yeah. you know, okay, let's just be honest. We could write it up one of two ways. <laughs> you know, we could write it up as saying this organization is really trying hard. They really are struggling with this. There's been some changes, but the administrator and the nurse manager are so excited about making these things. They listen to everything we said. And the accreditation committee is going to see that. Imagine that so- other side, you know, yeah, where I can't imagine this what organization was combative. I can't um, they weren't willing to take direction, right? Plus, um, you said uh, quite a lot that, you know, what if you are wrong? When you go back and turn in your report, it's going to be looked at. And if you can't, you know, show that, that you're correct in your assessment. Surveyors then may, are correct. Yeah, the surveyors. So you may end up not even be cited for that. So right. you're arguing for, for really no reason it won't ever go better because of that. If, yeah. if you're truly right and it's not really a citation, that'll come out more. I think once in the last 30 years I've been wrong. And, no, <laughs> in every no, I mean, aspect I, of your life or as a surveyor? <laughs> but I think it's fair to say to all of us surveyors here is that uh, we we frequently have to go. It, it is unfortunately frequently because there are so many things that we have to look up. Uh, Laurie, just a half hour ago you were looking up something that we all thought was uh, was true. We're not going to go into it here, but we thought was true. And then, you know, certain standards change. Uh, interpretations of those standards change. And we have to stay on top of that. And, and our job is to report what we saw. And then sometimes we have to have a conversation with the accreditation committee or with the reviewers there in order to make sure that we're correct in what we're doing. So you could get a, a surveyor saying that you, you know, have to fix something and then later on not have it there. But but Judy, to your point, this is such an important element. Do not start a fight. I don't know why I have to say this. Why do I have to have this conversation? The but. first thing you tell a client when they're getting ready for survey, especially if they've never had a survey before, this is not supposed to be punitive. Yeah. This is supposed to be educational. They want the the surveyors that come from AAA are, want to teach or you how to. Do, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Any accrediting um, organization want to teach you to do better. That's the reason they exist. It isn't to come in and be mean and and, and shut you down and, and right. wag a finger at you. Um, so that's always what I've, I've always told them the same way John does. I'm not, you know, John always tells them, I'm not going to come in here and yell at you. I want to teach you. I want you to ask me a question. And I'm sure that this center was told the same thing. Mm-hmm. This is not punitive. This is educational. Try to keep an open mind. Um, so I, I, I'd never been in that position before. I'd never seen somebody, especially an authority figure at a center, Remember, the more the surveyor cites, the more they have to write up. Yeah, well, yeah they, don't really, want they, don't, they don't want to write. And, yeah, and, and it's point. not a gotcha game. No. I mean, it's not like we're going in there looking for everything that's wrong. I find more things that I learn from mm-hmm. doing surveys than I can teach them. Things that they're, and I'm constantly saying, you need to sit, submit this to, like, say, Outpatient Surgery Magazine as a best practice. I say that all the time. Because they may get some nice reward, like getting to go to a meeting if the meetings mm-hmm. ever start up again. So it's like I'm looking for positives, not negatives. But they were lucky they didn't have a hothead surveyor because that could have ended up a big mess. And even if the surveyor didn't ever touch them, it's the fact that they could have taken it out on the report. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember, I wasn't there. I was offsite. I was praying oh, to God that that just, just absolutely croaking. That's yeah, I was a little nervous that day. Yeah, I actually did a survey a few weeks ago, and I got my report sent back with questions from the reviewer. You know, did you mean to write this or that, or can you support that? And 
you know, so the process doesn't end when we leave mm-hmm. or when we write up the survey because then we have to re-evaluate the survey. But I wonder so, how unless, many... Unless there's those perfect surveyors, which I'm not one of them, that there's no <laughs> questions for. But I wonder how many centers know that, <laughs> that it doesn't stop. You know, I tell them at the summation conference that, that I am just the note taker. I'm the one that observed what I saw, and then I'm submitting it. But now it goes through this, this, this and all the channels, and the decisions get made at a different level. So, but I, don't, I think you're right. Not everybody knows that. I'm not that. sure not everybody does, knows that, and I'm not sure every surveyor makes that clear. I mean, I know John does. I've heard it, and I've heard, I've heard other surveyors do it. But I, I just wonder if maybe they don't know, yeah. and they think it's. It's how I affect this one person. I In have to his change case, this it wouldn't person. be very good. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, I think um, the big takeaway from this is the importance of having you know, a good attitude going into it, but not getting to the point where you feel like you're overconfident. Because uh, uh, and, and be willing, please be willing to listen to, to advice. I know there's many times I make some off-the-cuff comment with center and I just said, you know, I say, you know, hey, I think this might have been a, this might be a great idea to do it. It's not going to show up in the survey report. It's just a suggestion. But often people get very defensive about even things like that. And all my intention there was just merely to kind of say, hey, you know, maybe if you move the the crash cart from here to over here, it'll make the flow better. You're not going to get cited because the crash cart. Well, in this case I just gave, uh, you're you're not going to get cited for it. But hey, maybe just think about it. it might be a good idea. Um, you know, listen to the, you know, things, especially when a surveyor kind of makes a suggestion. Hopefully they'll tell you that this is something that's just a suggestion, not a, not, not a, uh, an actual citation here. But try not to argue with them, or if you're going to have a discussion, uh, one thing I think all of us surveyors have no problem with is show me in the regs, show me in the accreditation standards where this is, uh, this is what's required. That's exactly right. That's a very fair question. But to come back and say, what's the worst phrase that we can ever say? Well, two phrases. <laughs> First one is... Because they said so? <laughs> and they didn't cite it last time. They didn't, they didn't cite, cite it last time. It. So and we've done one. it this way forever. That's right. And that's the second one is uh, what uh, Judy just said. I, I don't say that again. I don't we've, we've always done it this way. That's this right. Is, this is the forever practice. And another one that we hear a lot now is, why well, I don't have to do this in the hospital. Oh, oh, God, that one, too. <laughs> yes. So maybe there's three. You have to put yeah, three I fingers know. up. Well, the I'll hospitals aren't as tough as you are. And I said, well, that makes our care better. <laughs> that's right, when the physicians say that, that I just cringe because it's like, oh. I think we as surveyors, though, have to, I, I've been able to find a happy medium. I, I've always felt that. I think the challenge with some of our surveyors is they don't have the skills to de-escalate situations. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, I usually am the good cop. Uh, Lori is known as the bad cop in our, in our team here. Uh, so I'm not saying and that you I can't de-escalate situations. <laughs> I can de-escalate. It's important to know your strengths, Lori. <laughs> I know how to pull that fire alarm so everybody <laughs> I believe her new name is the Wicked Witch. <laughs> That's just in here. <laughs> but, yeah, so big takeaway, please, don't get overly, uh, well, it, and, and another way, it's not just that second survey after the first one. You could have a really good survey one year and then find yourself you know, three years later, think, hey, it was a great survey that time. This is going to be an easy one. But as, how many times have I said this? AAAC, when we come in, you know, we see the previous survey. We're going to say, okay, that's the base level. I'm expecting this organization, if they have a good quality improvement program, they're going to be, of course, nobody can see my hand gestures here, you're going to be a level above where you were before. And that's what our expectation is. So while we're on the topic of uh, 
surveys here. Sue, we did talk a few minutes ago about the issues of credentialing. And I did want to kind of dwell on that for a second because there have been some issues, like during the pandemic, for example. I mean, our situation was really not pandemic related where uh, they lost the initial uh, credentialing files. Uh, but we have found uh, because of the turnover during the, uh, the pandemic, because of the number of retirements and people leaving, that uh, at least among the organizations that we've worked with, and, and by the way, the organizations that I've surveyed almost universally, they had a problem with, with uh, credentialing afterwards, that I think it's extremely important that you get on top of that um, and that you make sure that the person that's in charge of credentialing has the proper training. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a little bit of self self uh, promotion. promotion here because we do have a wonderful credentialing uh, conference uh, that uh, Sue and myself and uh, Ann Geyer, before she joined us here, uh, did in December of 2020. That's available on ASCPodcast.com. It's a full-day conference. It's uh, available for uh, a very uh, reasonable price. It's a good conference for you to have your um, credentialing people look at it. And you as an administrator, nurse manager, is also a good thing to, uh, to probably look at. But uh, uh, And also, if you just go back and look at the podcasts that we've done over the last four years, you'll find quite a number of them where we talk about credentialing. But keep on top of credentialing. Don't let a gap occur between um, you know credentialing cycles here. And then one point is that I know we've had questions of with the pandemic and with the shortage, do we have some leeway and how much, you know, how can we be less strict about everything? But no, you still have to do, you know, you still have to keep up that same care and that same monitoring. So. In fact, that should have been an opportunity mm-hmm. because they weren't seeing patients. Yeah. Yeah. So it should have been an opportunity to, for them to get caught up in all of that. Yeah. And, and even if they furloughed their employee, the management team probably wasn't furloughed. Right. They were working from home. So that was the time they should have been getting ahead. <laughs> yeah. So when someone says to me, well, can we say, no, you can't say that COVID was the reason that you aren't current. Yeah. Yes. I was recently on a, at a center that used that excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there was a two-month gap between credentialing cycles. But the two-month gap started way after the initiation of COVID. And they also had remained open for their urgent cases, you know, which was allowed. And I said, yeah. That means a, a, a credential coming in is going to expect to see that this didn't happen mm-hmm. because there was a gap in your... Yeah. yeah. If you can't keep up on it, like, you, shouldn't, you, know, so you shouldn't be operating. Like, get your credentials. Well, if you have time for a quick story about credentialing, one of the surveys I did for real, the the young woman that was administrator we got to the peer review and the well mostly the credentialing I started with that and um she looked panic-stricken and she said to me I fully expect to get fired after this survey and I said I hadn't even started looking yet she said no it's not that I was out on a seven-month sick leave and I trained someone to do all the credentialing and, and timelines everything that they were supposed to do and she said I came back two weeks ago and knew you were coming for my survey, was at Medicare, not one credentialing file had been touched, and they had all expired. And these people had still been working all the way through <coughs> with expired so credential files. So what had this files. trained person been doing? That's what I said. First of all, you have two issues. I said you have a performance management issue, a big one, with this employee. Secondly, because she was in tears, I said, look, I can't penalize you for this. All I can do is say this is what I observed, this is what happened, 
and this is what you've done to fix it, because she was in high gear trying to get mm-hmm. her credentialing files current. I said, AAA is not there to fire you, and they're not there to get you fired. Do the best you can to catch up. But I said, you do have some issues here. And, and they start with these people. If you'd had a bad outcome, and that, that surgeon wasn't credentialed, you were talking about serious money problems. So, oh, well, she was fortified. So that, that's an, that brings up an, a, a very important element that I, I find getting ready for a survey is that if you find a problem that you know is going to be a problem during a survey, uh, you admit it. Yeah, on, right at the it, beginning. Put it, uh, put it in your quality improvement minutes, put it in your governing body minutes. You know, when we had the problem with your credentialing in this one organization, we, we said it right in, in the governing body minutes that we've had a breach, or not breach, a, a, a break in our, Credentialing cycle here. We have lost some of these records. This is what we're going to do. This, this, and this. And think of what happened. We kind of cut the legs off of the surveyors. I mean, the surveyors could not come in and cite because at a high level because yeah. we we were the ones that identified the problem. I say this a lot too. You did the right thing. You want to be the one to identify the problem and the fact that you're fixing it. So that sounds what what happened here. Yes. And did tell you, the surveyors right off the, as yeah. soon as they walk in the door. I can tell you, you're going to find some issues. And the issues are going to do, be with that. Now, if you had a chance to tell AAA first, then they would have known before even coming. But a lot of times, you're so busy trying to fix it. But um, you've got to bring it up front. And better that you find it than that we find it. That's right. Because that, it, it, if we find it, then, it, then, then we're it's going to a feel different like issue. you were right. it's more like You were hoping that the files we picked were the ones you'd scrubbed in the two weeks you'd been back. That's right. But, but let us put our briefcases down first. <laughs> <laughs> and get the coffee pot going. That's right. Or the iced tea. And then sit us down and tell us. Make sure we're comfortable. Yeah. And don't let us wait in the waiting room forever. Mm. We I buy did. things if you do that. Well, because we have been talking for about 47 minutes here, uh, we're going to break this into two parts. Even though we had that pause. <laughs> uh, so what I, I do want to finish up uh, this part. Uh, by just talking about survey organizations in general. Um, we, we talk in the podcast an awful lot about HHC and, of course, the Joint Commission because those are the, the two major organizations out there that do uh, do uh, accreditation and do <coughs> surveys. Uh, but there are other organizations out there. There is, of course, uh, Quad ASF uh, and another organization called HFAP. HFAP stands for the Health Facilities Accreditation Program. It's been around for quite a while. It was uh, merged with uh, uh, HHC a number of years ago, and then, I don't know what the proper term is, unmerged or uh, or split off from them, and yeah. they, they, are, they are now out on their own. Uh, we have in uh, MTR Healthcare Strategies, we have one organization that is HFAP. Uh, the, survey, uh, uh, the, the survey occurred prior to us taking on uh, that client. Uh, but uh, Their initial survey was before. Their initial survey. Yeah. They, they have a new one coming up. We'll probably have an opportunity to talk a little bit about the experience once that is happened. Yeah, because it's any day. But I, I think the it's important to realize that there are other choices. Like uh, you have a choice of airlines to fly. Uh, probably fewer than there were before the, the yeah, pandemic. Uh, you also do have a choice with regard to accreditation organizations. And as much as we think we know what organization we should be going with, uh, beforehand, maybe on preconceived notions, it is important before you choose that accreditation organization to read through the information about those organizations and find one that's going to have a philosophy that matches with your own organization's philosophy. There are reasons that you might go with the Joint Commission or AAAC or HFAP because of their, uh, you know, the way they do things. That each of them has their own attributes. I don't want to go into a lot more detail about that because 
you know, that is a personal choice. But uh, but it is important to note that there are other organizations out there that can fulfill your accreditation and your dean status needs. And at that way, with that, I'm just going to thank all of you here uh, for this part one of our uh, of our retreat uh, podcast here. And uh, uh, we'll take a break. Uh, we'll come back for. Uh, part three of the podcast here, and uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll keep the recorder going and go into part two, and we'll make this into a separate podcast. But thank you all for joining me. Thanks. Thank you. So this is John Gailey and Sue Cronkite back from the SC podcast with John Gailey. We are now in part two of of our annual spring conference, our fourth annual spring uh, retreat for Amateur Healthcare Strategies. And I have my entire uh, Amateur Healthcare Strategies team here. So uh, first of all, let's just quickly go around the room and introduce all the uh, the people that are here. Uh, we had a long introduction before, but uh, can everybody uh, say who's here? And uh, hopefully our listeners can recognize the voices as we speak. This is Sue Cronkite, Senior Nurse Consultant with AHS and the co-host of the podcast. Lori Rodericks, Director of Clinical Services. Jenna Alvarez, Senior Consultant. Alex Borman, Director of Operations. Laura Plummer, Consultant. Judy D'Ambrosio, Director of Education. And Geyer, Chief Nursing Officer. This is Dak Calaritas, Financial Consultant. Zach probably sounds a little bit further away because he's joining us remotely here through uh, Zoom. Uh, we've been together for the last three days. Um, uh, talking about various issues uh, with our amateur healthcare strategies team, and I should mention uh, there is another four-legged uh, person in the room here, and that is Rosie, Rosie, who is our director of uh, entertainment uh, for amateur healthcare strategies. Well, she is uh, mooching off of all of us here as they uh, as people uh, partake of the wonderful food we've had here. Well, well I, I think she's giving away the award for the most treats no given. <laughs> She's I'm not giving sucker. her any chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so for some reason, Rosie has decided her best friend here is uh, is Laura Plummer, who uh, joined us in November, and uh, they have been like uh, quite literally oh, joined at the hips. <laughs> and I she keep can't stop playing with her candy. With, with candy <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Rosie. I'm sorry. We're getting in trouble. So again, it's great to be back here. This is part two. In our first part, we talked quite a bit about uh, surveys, actually, but. Uh, some of the other things that we talked about during the um, uh, during our retreat here uh, and spent quite a bit of time on was the issue of policies and procedures. I think we can admit that, uh, all admit that policies and procedures are one of the, the more challenging issues that we confront when we are uh, working with the center and, and you as administrators and nurse managers have to deal with. So I thought I would just open it up to the groups and thoughts about um, managing your policies and procedures, the importance of keeping them up to date and how best to manage that process. So I am actually going to look toward Jenna Alvarez. I'm going to put her on the spot here uh, as our, I don't know what to, we, you know, we're not big on, on titles here so much, but uh, if there were a director of policies and procedures, um, or probably more appropriately, the policy queen, uh, you would have that title, correct, Jenna? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> not willingly. <laughs> So Jenna uh, actually uh, has been with me, uh, it, well, first of all, as most of you know by now, Jenna is my daughter, and uh, Jenna joined me just after nursing school, after she finished nursing school and before she got her uh, first job after she had moved to Reno, Nevada. She's back in Rochester now, but when she moved to Reno, and as she was waiting for her uh, Nevada uh, nursing license, she worked with me probably about three months, right? 
and it was longer than that. Really? Full time. I probably felt that one. <laughs> I just remember very long conversations in the car because we're in three different, uh, two different time zones and you yeah. would, would call me three hours apart. But you really developed the process that we use here at the company, which I think is something we should talk about here. You developed the, the process that we use in order to analyze the policy and procedure manual to make sure that it meets the requirements. And keep in mind that every organization, every ambulatory surgery center uh, in the country uh, has to at least meet the state licensure requirements and the federal certification, Medicare certification requirements, and those that are accredited have a third standard, which is also the accreditation standards. So can you just talk a little bit about how, over the years, you have developed some uh, some processes for doing that, for analyzing all of those things? Well, in the olden days, <laughs> we I actually just used the AAAHC handbook and would go by line by line and check off right. that, you know, there was whatever uh, needed to be in the policy manual. Then I got a little more high-tech and created an Excel spreadsheet. Actually, Alex created it for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and again, but I still was going through line by line, and there's so much rep repetition. Granted, Triple yeah. HC, uh, the majority of our clients use Triple HC, has gotten better in the recent years about eliminating a lot of the the duplication, duplication yeah. which is nice for my checks. But what? We, as we brought more people on and I was having to share the role of doing policy manual reviews, people were like, can you make something easier yeah. for us to, you know, that's not 50 pages. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Something a little quicker. That so we, what we did was we created a, a policy manual checklist, which it's a little more intensive than what Triple HC has where, you know, it's anywhere it said written policy for this. Yeah, we added a couple other things that we thought should be in policy. Right. Um, but we have that checklist, and then we use it to evaluate our policy manuals. Um, and usually what I like to do as a consult, you know, as the consultant for the regulatory, regulatory services, is I'll look at the policy manual from... Um, a regulatory standpoint, does it meet all the triple HC standards? And then I'll say to the nurse manager, especially, you know, when a triple HC survey is coming up or a state survey is coming up, you look through it and make sure that it's still what you guys are doing. Because right. sometimes, you know, you'll change a practice at your center and then you haven't gone back and um, updated the policy to reflect that. And actually, some of my bigger, uh, one of my bigger centers that loves their policy manual you know, I have some centers that care less what it says. Mm -hmm. I have some people who really, that is the Bible. Yeah. Um, and what they actually do, which I think is interesting, is they'll send out policies of the week to their entire staff. Mm -hmm. And the staff reads it. And then the people who are actually using those policies on a day-to-day -day basis can come back to the administrator who's not necessarily, you know, clinical anymore or you know he's not clinical anymore not on the floor all the time. yeah and they can say hey you know we don't we stop doing that we do this now and they can update the policy manual i think that's great to get that feedback and and that way all of your staff actually you know you when the surveyor comes in and they say okay your policy says this but your staff is doing that um you don't run into those problems right um, because you know there's a lot of centers especially smaller centers who when they're starting up will buy Policy manuals. Policy manuals. <laughs> but then they never go back and change it. So it'll be a GI center and it has things about sterilization. Yeah. And, and so that's, you know, 
um, or your GI center, and you have regulation or uh, uh, policies on uh, on your uh, radiology. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it happens. It we does see happen. It. We have it happens a lot. So, um, yeah. So that's what. So then, what we do with our policy manual is we try to make the policy manual match the checklist. So we we created chapters to the policy manual that follow along with the triple H C chapters. And, and likewise with Joint Commission, if you're a Joint Commission mm -hmm. Center that use the chapters there, a little bit different uh, style, but yes. Yep, yep. And uh, so then, you know, it's really easy for our surveyor when they're coming in and reviewing their policy manual to say, okay, I need to see your policy on, um, you know, your patient rights and responsibilities and I can go to chapter one and it's, it's there. Right there. And triple H C, I don't know what it is for Joint Commission. <laughs> Well, I, I think, yeah, and this really helps the surveyors a lot. And another recommendation I'd make is uh, we often have this battle between whether um, you should uh, have all of your policies in one, like, one document or all of your policies into folders in your hard drive. Mm -hmm. Or to print it out, you know, I mean, I think it, it's all right to print it out if that's the only way your employees can get it. The important thing is that a surveyor wants to know that your employees can readily get a hold of that policy manual. If everybody has access to a computer, there's absolutely no problem having the policy manual on the computer. But if that is not the case, if computers are not prevalent in your organization, you need to make sure that you have policy manuals all over. So talk a little bit about about how you put that policy manual together and the importance of versioning it. So what we do is we have, for our company, we have a number of individual policies and folders. That way we can um, make policies specific to our centers. So, you know, I'm not going to have a template policy or use the same template policy for a GI center as I would for an I center. Right. Um, but for the actual individual center, we'll have one Word document that we use as a revising copy of our policy manual. And then when the governing body approves the policy manual in its entirety or approves a new full, or a, sorry, a new policy or a revised policy, we'll put a new revision date on the policy that's changed. Or if it's the time for the annual review, at the beginning of the policy manual, we'll say that this policy manual is reviewed and approved in its entirety. On such and such a date. On such and such date. Yeah. Um, and then we save that as a PDF with the date that it's approved. And we say official policy manual approved, um, you know, May 14th, 2021. Yeah. That's the day we're recording. I don't know what day this is going to go up. <laughs> um, and that way, you know, you, when you're going back, um, you know, you can say, okay, this was our policy manual from May to December, and then, you know, in December we made this, this, and this change, um, and then you have a new policy manual in December when the board approves your new policies, right. or more often, however often, you know, your board approves policies. I have some centers that just do that, you know, they write their policies throughout the year and then they just approve it once a year, or I have some boards that just approve policies as needed usually depends on the size of the center and the, um, the way the board works. Right. The, the importance of versioning cannot be overemphasized, though. And uh, uh, all the three of, uh, well, Anne, uh, Lori, and I, all three of us do medical legal consulting periodically. 
and inevitably a question comes up uh, during a, a legal case when we're doing expert as an expert witness where we're being asked to uh, to review policies and procedures. It's very important that you be able to identify the policies and procedures that would have been in place on the data service that's involved. So that's why you would have a, a, a version that you can point back to. Second thing that you pointed out, Jen, is the importance of making that policy manual a PDF, something that cannot be changed by anybody. And that's one of the reasons that we really discourage people from having a folder on their computer with individual Word documents with each of the policies in there, because it is possible that somebody can go in, delete a policy, revise a policy, and you might not even know it if uh, in, all of your individuals in your organization have access to that. Well, folder. and the other problem I see centers run into when they have policies and folders is that they end up with multiple copies yeah. of the policy, and then you're trying to figure out which one's the most current, which mm -hmm. one's right, these two conflict, which one are we using? Um, so, I, right. I know some people when they switch from that to a, a one word document sometimes get frustrated because you know then if you have a paper copy, no, you know your page number is off. But yeah. it it is an adjustment, but I, I think it works better in the long run. And it's really nice when you come when you're either searching for something or when you're doing a survey and the surveyor searching for something, you can just do a global search of that document. And find something really quickly, rather than having, you know, to search a number of different folders for policy. Yeah. Which I find is really great, as long as you have that document. Otherwise, you you prove really quickly to the surveyor that you don't. So <laughs> right. <laughs> so I thought we would end our conversation today by uh, talking a little bit about why we're here as a company, and you know, kind of discuss. Um, you know, maybe this is self-advertising, of course, uh, which there's no problem with. Uh, but I think it's important to understand why companies like AHS exist and why uh, organizations might hire us. I, I think the world is a very different place today, and I think the pandemic taught us that, that it is very difficult to keep up to date. And we know the challenges that all of you as administrators out there, all of you as nurse managers have out there to keep up with it. And I think the other thing that I think all of us have seen, is certainly among our clients now, is that a lot of you are in the operating room now. You're, you're covering for staff. Even if you're an administrator, can't be in the operating room. You're doing the credentialing. You never did it before. You have a lot more challenges. Maybe you're spending half of your time. I know some of our administrators are spending half of their time just trying to recruit new staff here, trying to identify new staff, training new staff. We know that even once you, you get them, you've got all that training that has to be done. So I did want to open that up. You know, what has been our experience? And I'm I actually going to look to Ann because... You know, you've learned a lot in the last couple of days about companies such as ours. You come from a management company background, of course, and, and yes. working with organizations that, that are very different than what we do. Yeah. So um, your perspective, of course, I think would be interesting to the audience so that they can kind of see, you know, what are the advantages of using an organization? Why might you consider doing this sort of thing? Well, I think there's a lot of advantages to using a company like this because we have a, a whole team of experts. And there are people that have strengths in some areas that the others don't have strengths in. But as a surgery center, you probably don't have it, those strengths. Mm -hmm. And you have some knowledge in a lot of different areas, but you don't have all the knowledge. And you hire a company like this, we come in and we can help you get through that tangled mess of rules and regulations. And they change every day. That's the thing about COVID. When we got hit with all the COVID regs, that put a humongous 
new layer of information that we had to know, and it contradicted itself. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, one day they told us one thing, and another day they told us another thing, and you're trying to write protocols that are going to keep your staff current, and so you needed help. Now, you have to weigh that against what it costs, and I think it's a bargain. It doesn't matter in some cases because you can't do it by yourself. You don't have that knowledge base. You may have a survey coming up, or you know you're overdue for Medicare. They're going to show up. You want to take that chance? You can take that chance, but it just takes a huge weight off of you. If you have a company like John's that comes in with a team of experts in a lot of different areas, and we can help you with all of the things that you just can't do it by yourself. And, and being an administrator in a surgery center can be overwhelming. I've been there. I've done that. I've been in the ASC industry since 1985, and it's just like a lot of people have gotten out. A lot of my friends are no yeah. longer even in the industry because they said, I j it wore me out. And you know what the number one thing, John, that they say? I hate managing people. Yeah. I think that after a while, managing people became the worst part of it. And so, again, back to COVID. Now you're managing people who understand FMLA, who understand that the COVID regulations say if they're off that you have to give them X number of days of quarantine. And then, I mean, it just adds layer upon layer there. And then unemployment. They don't want to come back to work. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you're paying them an extraordinary amount of money, but they find that they can sit at home and watch TV and make some money, and they like that. Yeah. And they figure when they have to, they'll come back to work. Meanwhile, you can't see patients. So you bring in somebody like us to help you, um, at least to help you streamline your schedules and your staffing and things like that. But there's a lot of reasons to get help, and, and I'm always... Um, amazed when somebody says, well, we just can't afford it. And I, my response is, well, can you afford not to? And I, what we find recently, too, is that with the amount of turnover that has been happening in many of our organizations, um, we are that consistency. Uh, Alex, you were joking before that, uh, unfortunately, you have uh, probably the highest turnover in the company of your staff. I don't know what that means about your uh, <laughs> yeah. management style. Uh, <laughs> But, but clearly, there are organizations, Alex tends to get some of the, the, the ones that, that, you know, struggle, you know, with being able to find people. Some organizations are in locations that are just impossible to find people with the experience that we have here. Yeah. And what we've been able to do, what has been a big advantage of having uh, an organization, you know, we're not the only ones out there, of course, we'd like you to think that we are. Uh, but but what uh, the advantage that we bring to the table is that we provide that consistency. You lose somebody on Monday and we're in there on Tuesday to, to help you, you know, prepare uh, and get ready for that next person and help you cover that, that gap there. But as Ann said, the advantage of having the, the peace of mind of knowing that there is somebody there that can help you get through this is important. Uh, that's why many, you know, we're, we're finding management companies becoming one of our biggest growth areas right now because you know the average management company even a larger one might not have a team nearly as large as ours is that focuses entirely on you know risk management quality improvement disaster preparedness and things like that so i do thank all of you for um uh you know for for putting up with our two episodes here about our retreat we do this every year because i think it is a great advantage to uh to be able to uh, uh, to come to you and, and explain some of the uh, the things that we've learned over those two days, as well as discussing, you know, all of the the changes that have occurred and the changes that are coming down the pike. And I want to thank all of you uh, around the room here for uh, 
for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedules to come together for three very intensive days to discuss this and, of course, to join us on the podcast. So thank you again for your time. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks. So, Alex, I thought another thing we should probably talk about is uh, your area, which is uh, disaster planning and disaster preparedness. And uh, let's say, let's just say there's been a couple things going on in the last year here. So we're sitting here in, uh, we're actually recording this in mid-May 2021 after, uh, uh, you know, a lot of announcements actually this week with uh, uh, starting to return to normal, mask mandates being uh, removed. But we've learned a lot uh, in the last year. And I think one of the most uh, important lessons that we learned is that Disasters aren't necessarily short-term items, uh, things that last only a very short period of time. And that uh, every pandemic isn't necessarily one that is going to have a very high mortality rate. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about some of the lessons we've learned here and the things that we need to do to prepare ourselves for uh, the future. What types of things are surveyors expecting to see? And probably more importantly, I, I think one of the lessons that we've learned during this too is the fact that this isn't just a paper exercise. Right. Uh, we needed to be better prepared for what happened, uh, not just because of the paperwork side of it, not just because we wanted to pass a survey, but we had a real-life disaster that really affected every single surgery center. So talk a little bit about our experience here, and then we'll all chime in on some of our thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So like you touched on briefly, um, you know, making sure that we keep an eye on those disasters that could last longer than say a day or so, um, you or, know, months, think, or, or, or six months, or six months, or, six or, six months, two or years, years. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, we, we really haven't thought about too many disasters in the ASC community as lasting very long. You know, in the ASCs, it's kind of the default is always, Hey, there's a disaster. Okay. We close and cancel cases right. and I'll go home. But clearly through the pandemic, that hasn't been possible. So we're moving much more into a realm of emergency preparedness while still taking care of our patients and how we can manage that. Um, and, and one of the considerations that comes with that and has, has been adopted as part of the, the new CMS um, state, state operations manual and the, and the interpretive guidelines in there is what are you doing to take care of your patients and how are you contributing to your community? Um, Those are considerations that we're going to have to start um, determining as part of our risk assessments now. So Alex, recently CMS came out with some guidance on emergency preparedness that further clarified uh, the changes to the regulations that actually came out prior to the pandemic. Uh, I know you've been pouring over them uh, I know you don't have total answers yet on this, and we, we will yeah. probably uh, uh, circle back with you once uh, we have some more conclusions. But you can talk a little bit about the, what you've learned so far from, uh, from the new guidance. And by the way, we, uh, for our listeners, we did uh, have an episode where we talked about this, um, uh, in, uh, not in as much depth as probably you're going to talk about now, but at least introducing the subject. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, they're looking for many more policies or at least at least one policy specifically focused much more on pandemics and and not only one pandemic the the pandemics that they do mention they include um, pandemics and infectious disease I'm going to kind of use those interchangeably even though there are some differences in there but um, you know 
potentially infectious biohazardous waste, bioterrorism, pandemic flu, um, highly communicable diseases such as Ebola, Zika, SARS, or novel COVID. Um, those are all specifically mentioned in in the new guidance. Um, now that doesn't mean you need a different different policy for each one of those things, but you do need policies that are adop- adaptable to different types of pandemics and different types of infectious diseases. So, Lori, I'm actually going to look at you for a second here, even though our audience can't see that I'm looking at you. Uh, And we had talked about this in a previous podcast, but I think a lesson that we've learned from this that's very important to understand is that we, in in the infection control circles, have always uh, been much more concerned about surgical site infections. And let's face it, you and I have talked about this before, well before the pandemic, is that, you know, if, if we find out about a patient having a communicable disease, we don't even let them in the door. And if they show up on the door, we ship them out. Never before did we anticipate what's happened here where we'd have to be screening people on an ongoing basis for this. And this is our new reality, right? So those are the types of things we need to be seeing in our policies moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about that? No, it's that's that's true. I mean... Years ago, if, if everyone remembers, because it seems like forever ago, yeah. it was uh, screening for Ebola. Right. And or if you're in New York, you do that now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, or fortunately, we get to do that again if you're in New York State um, ASC. But no, um, I hope you didn't throw out your posters and yeah. you New Yorkers out. Yeah, I don't think the screening process has changed much from the last time, but um, it's been re- reintroduced here in New York State. But um, we did that probably with tongue in cheek because no one ever anticipated that someone would come to their center that had been um, you know, diagnosed or come in contact or possibly transmitting Ebola. Mm-hmm. Um, we did have recently, though, prior to COVID, we had the measles outbreak in New York mm-hmm. it's true. Right. City area and the Westchester area. Right. Um, but, but measles is more within our own country. Mm-hmm. Ebola is is uh, shipped, but that was in. another real one where you actually yeah. it was a real. It, it wasn't happened. A, it wasn't a pandemic. It was you know just a minor minor epidemic, epidemic and, which was a very regional thing. Yeah. But you know we had centers that had to make, um, especially in our pediatric population, some really tough decisions about are we going to require that kids be vaccinated yeah. before they come in? Are we screening for that? Which was it something that we never really had to do? Well, and also whether your staff had been yeah. vaccinated because, you know, adults can still come down with, with the measles if they hadn't been vaccinated. And, you know, so, you know, you have to be um, conscious of that. You Now we have to stay really current on what's going on in our community, in our region, in our, you know, uh, in New York, in the boroughs, in the different um, counties and and things like that. So, um, you know, you just have to keep a, keep your thumb on it, you know, realistically, and be so, prepared. So that really kind of gets to the heart of risk assessments. And let, so there's two risk assessments that we need to talk about. I'm going to talk to Alex in a second about the HVAs, but Lori, why don't you talk about how our ICRAs, our infection control risk assessments, are changing now. Um, and perhaps they, perhaps they should have been including these things in the past, but what have we learned and what do you suggest for our audience 
uh, they should be looking at as they look, well, hopefully they already did this, but if they haven't, what are the types of things they should be looking at as part of their new ICRIS? Well, you, you want to look at the, the most common things such as surgical site infections or, um, you know, communicable diseases. And there, almost everybody on their risk assessment had some sort of a pandemic, but it wasn't specific. It just said pandemic. Right. Um, when this one hit, when COVID hit, it was really a um, an airborne type of a um, virus or, or, you know, pandemic or however you want to word it. And as much as I'm sure every center thought they were well prepared, didn't we come to find out that we weren't? Mm -hmm. because we didn't have enough PPE. We didn't have things in place in the event that that should happen. Um, who would have thought in an ASC that you would have to use a respirator? Yeah. Um, you know, that sort of thing. So um, hopefully everyone has done a risk assessment since last March mm -hmm. uh, because of the, the active pandemic that was and still is in place. Um, and the, the likelihood that it's going to happen again. Correct. And, yeah. and to be prepared for it. And, you know, and now uh, you might have taken Ebola off of your risk assessment because you were required to have it to be prepared for it. Now you're going to make sure you're putting it back on if you are a New York State um, uh, center. But it's just things like that. And you're going to assess your community. You're going to take a look and see what are the, um, the risks so like um, Jenna was talking about, um, I guess maybe two years ago, mostly in Brooklyn, uh, the measles uh, outbreak was, was huge, absolutely huge. So at that point, they should have performed another risk assessment to see if they were um, in an area that had a high incidence, if they, had, if they were taking care of kids who were mostly affected, mm -hmm. if they um, were prepared or how they would treat it. Um, if they should find out um, that a patient came in that was exposed or act, had active measles and didn't realize it or found out after the fact. You know, so it's just things like that. So it's not just our um, sterilization processes, our cleaning processes. It's also looking at what's going on in our communities. Let's also make a push for something that both you and I are very passionate about, and that is the uh, Certified Ambulatory Infection Preventionist Credential, the important, and, and what that means, the importance of having somebody in your organization that just isn't on paper a professional in infection prevention. Nowadays, you really have to have somebody that's properly trained, that's up to date on all of these standards, that's probably been through some of the training that we, of course, offer through the ASC podcast, but more importantly, gets that trained from whatever source they get it from. And, and then consider getting a credential such as a certified ambulatory infection prevention so that you can document and, and push yourself to a new limit uh, to, uh, to be prepared for that. Well, if you are, um, if you do perform uh, or accept uh, Medicare, if you are a CMS certified uh, organization, um, you have to have someone that is specified to be your infection control uh director or your infection preventionist or someone that's overseeing your program, someone that's licensed. So it can't be your front desk person um, unless they are a, a licensed you know, practitioner at the mm -hmm. front desk. Um, and a licensed healthcare, licensed healthcare professional right. is the actual term. Yeah. And so the, the other thing too is that that person really needs to understand the role that they're in and uh, 
you know, embrace it. And in order to embrace it, they have to be given the opportunity to um, spend time and to learn and to maintain and to keep the center um, well informed and the staff informed, the physicians informed. Um, I recently did a center that I found, uh, this was on a Medicare survey, uh, so many findings in the um, infection control portion of the survey um, and it was evident that it wasn't being overseen to the uh, to the um, any kind of degree just because they had someone that came in for an hour a week again yeah. came in wasn't there on site yeah um, wasn't part of the team wasn't part no. of the uh, operation wasn't providing ongoing training no I mean they were associated with this organization but not a, a hands-on deck type of a person it was it was evident but um, you know so that in itself you know rings bells and mm -hmm. so you, you want to have someone that understands and is passionate about it. Well, you know, it doesn't have to be passionate, but really, um, in, you know, absorbs it and pushes the envelope for the center to be high quality and infection control because it's not just for the patients. It's also for you, um, the staff, and, and for your providers because you have to protect everybody in your center, not just the patients. I'm going to pivot to pivots become a new term uh, that we've been talking about a lot here, the, the ability of ambulatory surgery centers to pivot. So we are going to pivot back to Alex here to talk about the other type of risk assessment and how HVAs or hazard vulnerability analysis um, have changed. Alex, hate to have to do this to you, but uh, can you start by describing to those, uh, those new listeners that we have here as to what an HVA is? Because that might be a term that not everybody is familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. So um, part of the CMS requirements are that you perform a hazard vulnerability risk assessment. Um, some people call it disaster risk assessment, um, but really what it is, a, it, it takes a look at all of the possible disasters. Um, it's an all-disaster approach to emergency preparedness. So you need to look at each of the possible disasters for your area, talk about the probability the risk, and then actually your mitigations and what you're, what you're doing and what your current systems are in place and whether those are good, whether you have vulnerabilities, and what you're going to do to fill those vulnerabilities. And before we get into how those have changed, I think it's important to note, Alex, you and I run into this a lot, that just filling out the numbers, just calculating this, the scores isn't enough, right? Right, right. And while it's useful to have numbers so that we're measuring everything consistently, that's not everything. And you need to know what those numbers actually mean. A lot of risk assessments are a little ambiguous, you know, when you do high, medium, low risk. Uh, what What is that? You know, how, how frequent would that disaster hit? Or, you know, is it once in 50 years? Or is it once a year? You know, those are huge differences. And a lot of it's prediction. You know, where you're being asked to predict the future, which I don't think anybody is actually all that good at. Otherwise, we'd all be right. Since, I, since I'm the one to blame, <laughs> Alex and I were sitting down uh, in 2019 trying to predict what was the uh, most important disaster to plan for. And I do have to say, I think we were in agreement that uh, pandemic was not something that was likely to happen. <laughs> and that a, uh, you know, what was it, an active shooter was the one that we needed to train everybody on. Boy, did we miss the mark, Alex. I guess yep. we're not... 
uh, not the people to be making predictions of that type. But. Well, well, John, I can say my money's on civil war and world wars now. So I <laughs> funny, but uh, who knows? Yeah, no. Certainly, current the, the current well, state of our. Uh, <laughs> um, but it has changed, um, and we're going to see a shift here in how we do hazard vulnerability assessments. Really, you know, using using numbers, it's going to be useful still, but we're going to see a lot more narrative-based risk assessments, I think, because yeah. of these new requirements from CMS where we have to assess our community's vulnerabilities, our patients' vulnerabilities, and really address what both parties need from us and our staff, for that matter. I mean, just look at COVID pandemic. You have community hospitals that were getting overrun by COVID cases. Um, that was the huge thing that all of us were tracking were how, how overwhelmed are our hospitals. And us in the ASC industry were sitting here saying, hey, you're not letting us do any of these cases. And so they're all getting shifted back to the hospital. Uh, we could be helping the community in this way and I, and I think we've seen an adaptation in the community to move a little bit more to using ASCs in that way. But what about other disasters? What about natural disasters yeah. that are, you know, long-term? I, I think about places like California where you have these massive forest fires yeah. that come through and sweep in and they're, those last weeks, you know, it's not... And the power failure, the, power, the rolling power... Right. outages there and then look what happened in texas where for two weeks you were without power yeah just here in new york here in rochester new york um god it was like three years now ago now but we had a lot of places were without power for a whole week mm -hmm. and we all went out and bought generators for our homes because we said well this is we don't want to be that house on uh lake ontario that froze completely yeah. you know we, we want to heat our home and actually um you know have power so i i think looking at what the community needs what our patients need what our staff need and the risks to the center that itself you know all of that has to be taken into consideration now in a much more in-depth way that feeds right into our policies and that's that's the important part to remember here is if this risk assessment doesn't feed into your drills that you do, your policies that you maintain, then it's useless and why are you even doing it? And as you're evaluating the results of that HVA, understanding that everything that you identify is needed to be changed isn't something that has to be done right away. Uh, you're developing a plan for the next year, a strategic plan or a set of goals and objectives. Absolutely, so, you know. yeah. Yeah, and don't be afraid to write on that risk assessment that right. you know we're we're working on improving these policies, improving right. this this plan, improving uh, doing a drill later, and and out of that drill, you know you should have learning that happens because that's that's why we do drills; they're part of our education. So like that's an interesting segue, uh, Judy, as our director of. Uh, of educational services so educational programs have uh, shall we say adapted a little bit in well, the we, last year and we had uh, no choice we had no choice so talk a little bit about how uh, we've had it uh, actually you know even though this is a little off the topic of uh, have disaster preparedness talk first about how you've had to adapt your disaster uh, education programs now, let's talk a little bit broader about education in general here because I don't think we've met 
Um, those are two different roads for me to take. So the first road I'll take is that, um, from a drill point of view, they were always looked at as, okay, I have to have two of these, and I have to have two of these, and they have to be done by this, you know. And I think what the pandemic did is make all of us more aware of that, okay, we're doing these because they're obviously possible. And I don't think we realized that they are possible until it happened. Yeah. These drills that we do, yeah, we do have to have them on paper, and yes, we do have to have them at a certain time frame, but they should actually teach us something. Yeah. Like, you should never have a drill that has the same problems as a drill before. It should have been a something that you learned from. Yeah. Um, I, I love that comment. I mean, truly, uh, don't just be doing these drills. To file them. To file them. Got to file because them. Because if we had had a, can you imagine if we had had a sit-down, uh, you know, tabletop drill about a pandemic and somebody had brought up, what would happen if we had to shut down for a while? Some of the things that we could have saved ourselves, you know. And we would have been laughing we as we yeah. did it because it never occurred, you know, this yeah. will never happen. But, um, and maybe we how? need to have those conversations of yeah. things that we think are so completely out of the realm of possibility because now I think everybody's learned that there is no outside of the realm yeah. of possibility anymore. And the whole point of an education program is to actually educate. Yeah. Not because, oh, gee, you have to do it once every year because it's mandatory. And that's one thing about, I will say about the pandemic is that I like to be in a room of people to educate. Mm-hmm. I never believe that I'm the person in the room that knows more than the other people in the room either. And and part of what I've always said, and, and those people listening that have ever been in one of my education programs have heard me say this, you will learn more from the people around you than you ever do from me. And you'll remember what your, co- your co-workers and your colleagues say more than you'll remember what I do. So if you get all those people in a room, think of how much there is to learn. Think of how many ideas there are to try to face something that was so daunting and, and so unbelievable. And you're right. Had we had the, not, I don't want to say the good sense, because who would have, you yeah. know, if we had had that opportunity, we were given that opportunity to sit down and go, well, let's just talk pandemic for a second. You know, we, I know this is crazy. and we, It is a game that we all used to like. We used right? to play that board together. game. Like, I remember Sitting that board game. There. Yeah, yeah. You guys and, want to play that tonight? And we were, <laughs> funny, isn't it funny <laughs> how as amusing as that game was? I have no interest in playing that game ever again. Yeah. And how, like, how we were laughing and how funny it all seemed. Um, I wish we'd paid more attention. That would have been a, a nice little learning curve that we missed. So take that full circle. Um, how have our educational programs evolved? Uh, and how should our... Our listeners consider uh, new educational avenues here. Uh, and one thing I, I have to say, I am not a fan of these online Me educational neither. programs where you log on, you you know listen to a video for five minutes, and then you answer a bunch of questions, which are very generic. They are. Um, it's so funny. I, in in the room with us right now is my daughter uh, Kristen, who uh, who is a member of our firm. She happened to join us very quickly here, but she uh, she works in a nursing home, and she just like. Knowing nothing else about this conversation just shook her head, but I'm sure, Je- uh, Kristen, you can speak up. Why is it, what's the reason for that? It's so easy just to click next, 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 and not watch the video. That's exactly right. Yeah. We, and and I, I, I know, I'm not, okay, I'm admitting it. I've done that too. So you know, Because I have seen these videos so many times. If I see one more, I've taught HIPAA classes. Why do I need to see this again? It's boring. But, so how have we changed? You know, how should our listeners change in their educational programs? What should they be doing as they develop their programs going into the next year? They're called mandatories because they're mandatory. Yeah. 
But that does mean they have to be exactly the same thing year after year. And I agree with Kristen. I worked in a hospital system here in Rochester 22 years. Those mandatories came down off the computer 22 times. They were the same answers to the same questions. I didn't have to remember what was in there because I just remembered the letter sequence. I learned nothing. And everybody that came after me learned about the same amount. Um, there's a way to do a mandatory education that isn't exactly the same as it was last year because every year changes so much. Mm-hmm. Yes, HIPAA is, a, is something that we all know. You know, we work in healthcare, we understand what a HIPAA is, but there are subtle changes to that all the time. And one and, center. And people m- learn things during the last year. They might have actually had an experience with HIPAA. Yeah. And that experience is going to be talking about that experience, talking about the, the going through that exercise could be far more valuable than repeating what we have taught you for 22 years. Say it over and over again. I could say it with my eyes closed. But you open up some of the, and I'm picking on HIPAA just one because it's first in our program and because it was the first one I thought of. But if you start it as a conversation and the people in the room say, okay, but what if if this happens? You know, like Lori and, and Lori and Ann were here yesterday and we were talking and I had somebody call and say, okay, one of our patients this, this week coming happens to be one of our employees. Now, I know when they walk in the door that day, they're not an employee, they're a patient and will be treated like any other patient that's ever worked here. This patient is HIV positive. I'm the only one that knows. Yeah. And she had to call me. Now, she, this girl's been in healthcare as long as I, she knows what HIPAA is, but every once in a while you just wanna. So that education needs to keep going. It can't be the same. Um, and we answered her question because that's what we do. Um, but having those conversations, okay, I had a center that had this question. Have you thought about this question? Has something happened here with you guys that, that we could talk about? And those exchanges that seem like very casual conversations are the part of the education they remember. I can't tell you one, one line of the education in the mandatories for that hospital. I can tell you what all the answers were, but I can't tell you what one thing said. Um, and I think that happens. That, that It's so easy to just keep shooting out the same stuff. Yeah. There are subtle changes to everything. Believe it or not, there's subtle changes to OSHA bloodborne pathogens. There's subtle changes to everything, not even in a year as crazy as this one, even in a normal year. Um, and you have to embrace those. You have to find those, and you have to try to create conversations about them when you have the luxury of having people in the room with you. And even if there are no changes, you can still learn something by talking about the experiences that you might have had mm-hmm. in the last year. That I completely agree. Yeah. Those conversations are, are paramount to education, I think. As we uh, close out this section on uh, disaster preparedness, any last thoughts, Alex, uh, as you digest all of the uh, all of the, the, the regulations out there and any last thoughts for our listeners? I guess as a last thought, I would just mention uh, to remember all of the supply issues that yeah. we've had through the pandemic. That is a and to be and to be creative in your disaster preparedness program. You know, in terms of supply you know, we're talking PPE, obviously, but I mean, something I think a lot of us are still going through is nursing and staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so how are you going to deal with, I, I mean, they, they talk about surges a lot yeah. in, in emergency preparedness where you've got a surge of new employees that you brought on because you need to cover procedures for the hospital. Yeah. That's a lot less likely than hey, the hospital needs all of your staff members. Now how are you going to operate and how often? And, and so, so those are some of the things to start thinking about is, you know, PPE, staffing, and, and any other supplies that you need. Medications were another big one. Yeah. 
so and be creative. Think about things that even if nobody else has thought about, you know, contaminated food, contaminated water, you know, there's all sorts of disasters that we're not thinking about that you can add to your HVA and you can can help prepare you for the future because we don't know what's coming and it's it's worth being prepared. And it also makes this a little bit more interesting, let's face it, as, as Christian kind of indicated, who wants to go through these mandatory education programs? I, I, nobody has time. Nobody has time. And, and that's right, because again, we're all short-staffed right now. So this, con this conversation that we're having about you know the time that we need to set, set aside for, for education um, I know a lot of our listeners are probably sitting back there saying, yeah, yeah. when do I have time? Yeah, when am I going to do this? That's some hard fought for time right there. Yeah. And, and I think, um, being innovative about the way you do this, you know, finding time in your schedule, uh, you know, just to sneak out if it's 15 minutes, uh, you know, every Friday, I, I, I mean, I don't think it matters how much time you do with this, but do find that time, find some innovative ways. We're recording, uh, we have this, uh, we have these two studios now where we, uh, We've learned that we have more cameras than I know what to do with here. Uh, than any of us are comfortable with. And anybody is comfortable with. And a lot of cam uh, of microphones it's and equipment and recording stuff. And we're going to make full use of it as we bring uh, our company and our clients into the new age as recording things that we can provide to employees that can do it in that 15 minutes in between, you know, cases or on that one day out of the, the month when all of a sudden, uh, you know, when, when a case was canceled and they had some free time. Find innovative ways to do that. And... and Judy and Alex, both of you kind of said, actually, Alex, you made a big point about this, you know, uh, be innovative about this. Uh, and, and I guess the thing I would say is have some fun with it, too. Right. I mean, this is serious stuff. I get that. Uh, we, we pick on Alex all the time because he has actually created a, a disaster plan for World War III. Uh, he <laughs> might have the last laugh on this. It's hard to say. Um, you know, we know that uh, the, um, um, uh, the government has created a plan for... Zombies. Um, for the yeah. zombies and the zombie apocalypse. Oh, and not because we really expect it, though. Who knows after this year? And to be clear, I won't be laughing with World War II. <laughs> <I know. laughs> what about the aliens? <laughs> yeah, the aliens. Uh, but, They're already uh, here. <laughs> but, but, they, but what happened, you know, when the government came out with the zombie apocalypse type discussion, is it, it made it interesting for people. Uh, yeah. It gave them something to kind of laugh at at the same time they're learning. Yeah, find, find the staff member that likes to write stories. You know, I, I'm a. Uh, a writer on the on the side here and you know I I love coming up with you know fake scenarios for drills and stuff so find that staff member I mean there's writers all struggling writers all over the <laughs> all over the planet so find that person in your facility and you know make use of that talent so <laughs> thank you everybody In this segment, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCpodcast.com. And I do have to point out, not many people are sending us this information. We're having nope. to search for it ourselves or, or we're advertising yeah. um, conferences yeah. where I'm speaking. So mm -hmm. I know that I'm not speaking at every single conference out there. Nope. So if <laughs> I'm you sure do, we're missing some. We're sure we're missing it's some. Hard to find them all. We yeah. just don't have the time to yeah. go through and uh, search the entire country for uh, upcoming conferences. So please uh, do send us that information at info at ASCpodcast.com.
So the next conference coming up is the uh, Texas ASC Society's Annual Conference, September 21st through the 22nd, 2021 at the Hilton Fort Worth in Fort Worth, Texas. And I'll be speaking on a panel on the 21st. The Illinois Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual meeting is on September 22nd at the Sheraton Lyle Naperville Hotel in Lyle, Illinois. And the Ohio ASC Association's conference will be at the Hilton Columbus Polaris on September 27th and 28th. And they're going to be hosting a, a full two-day event there featuring an exhibit hall and two full days of education. And I will be the keynote speaker on the 27th. And the New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers live and in-person Roaring Twenties Conference will be held in at the Sleepy Hollow Hotel and Conference Center in Terrytown, New York, September 29th and 30th. And for more information, visit nysaasc.org. And we're going to have a huge presence there. I think mm -hmm. eight people from Amateur Healthcare Strategies yeah. will be there. So make sure you say hi to it. Sue and I will be there recording. So uh, stop up and, uh, and say hi to us if you're coming. And the Medical Director Conference is going to be October 9th. So this is, uh, it's going to be a Saturday. It's going to be from about 9 in the morning until about 3 in the afternoon Eastern Daylight Time. And uh, it's a great opportunity for medical directors to get together. To the best of my knowledge, this is the, the first time anything like this has been mm -hmm. uh, done, certainly in recent history. And uh, we're looking forward to it. I'm, yeah. I'm assuming it's going to be kind of small to start off, but hopefully this will become an annual event. And we're also going to try to see if there's other ways for medical directors to kind of collaborate with each other during the mm -hmm. conference. So uh Again, Medical Director Conference is going to, it's a virtual conference, October 9th. For more information, visit ASCPodcast.com. And the next conference after that is the ASC Conditions for Coverage Conference, um, October 22nd, 2021. That's something that We've been we had so thought about excited. doing for yeah. so long because it just seems like there's just, well, there is a lot of information to cover and I think it'll be a really useful yeah, and we, we always do a four-hour session during mm -hmm. both of the uh, the boot camps, and it, it just always feels so rushed as we're going through that, that uh, it's going to be almost like a luxury to have uh, eight hours, though I'm sure that it will, we'll still not have enough time to go through yeah. all that. But as all of you know, the ASC conditions for coverage are the Medicare regulations, and every single one of you out there who is uh, in the management needs to understand them. So uh, for more information to sign up for the uh, ASC conditions for coverage conference, go to the ASC podcast. Com website. And the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show is November 4th and 5th, 2021 at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. And the Pennsylvania Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual meeting is November 8th, 2021 at the Hershey Lodge in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And the 2021 Ambulatory Surgery Center's Congress is November 8th and 9th, 2021 at the Araya Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I'll be speaking on a panel on the first day of the conference on the 8th. The ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp, the November cohort, is presented by the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, and that will be November 16th through the 19th. Um, that will be presented virtually. For more information, visit ASCPodcast.com. And don't forget, we uh, recorded last year a credentialing workshop. Uh, on it was recorded in December of last year. It's still available by going to the ASC Podcast website at ASCPodcast.com. We also want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource to busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include access to 
to virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, discounts and services, books and access to AAU credits, as well as uh, weekly drop-in sessions. Uh, we didn't have one this last weekend because it was uh, a holiday weekend, but most of, them, most of the time it's on uh, Saturday mornings about 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. So for more information, you can visit asc-central.com or ascpodcast.com. So that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider uh, becoming a patron by going to our website. And spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast has been an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.